Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Brain Food Podcast. What's on the agenda today? We are talking about more fascinating origin of everyday things. This is part two. There's going to be a lot in this series. I'm not sure how many. I could go like, I added it up and I could go like 20 episodes, but I think that would be overdoing it. So I think we might cut it off at some point, like at five or six probably, and move on to something completely different. But yes, so we're, due, we're going to start with the best things since sliced bread and talk about some bread things, uh, inventions, um, and then the shopping cart, which is you know more interesting than you might think. <laughs> I'm excited. That is, that is that well, we were talking in between the episodes, how you were saying you've got an episode on the cardboard box coming up. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was going to be in this one, but it's, it's, too, it's as boring as it sounds right now. And I need, to, I need to spruce it up a little bit, find a story in there somewhere or more of a story. I should say there's a little bit of a story, but yeah. Yeah. How are we starting? Quick fact. Yeah. Did you, did you actually, I wasn't paying attention. Did you actually open this, the episode like we... we no, I didn't. I was, I'm, I'm sorry. I was very distracted in the first two minutes because I was in the, someone said the video wasn't working, but then someone said the video is working, refresh your page. And then I realized I shouldn't just listen to one person who's complaining in the video stream while I try to fix things. And everyone's like, no, it's fine. If you are listening to this or watching this live on YouTube, uh, we also do this in a podcast version, which is a great way to listen to the show. If you're a busy person on the go, like we all are these days, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, or if you're not, and it's 3 a.m. wherever you're watching this, <laughs> then uh, yeah. And if you want to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are giving away a $1,000 Amazon gift card to one lucky winner when we get 1,000 reviews on... We decided we'd look at iTunes US and when they got to mm-hmm. 1,000 reviews, we'd go through and look at all the reviews on like the major platforms. If you're like, and on the other iTunes as well, like, you know, UK, UK all, yeah, all the, all the all major the, countries. That, all the major countries. Yeah. If you're like listening yeah. from Timbuktu on a podcast app that four people use, yeah. then you're probably, we're probably not going to see your review in it to you. But if I'm you're probably not going to check like Guinea-Bissau yeah. uh, iTunes, but like I, I check all the, all the main ones. Yeah, cool. We will. So do that. Leave us a review. It would be awesome of you. Doesn't need to be good. Although obviously that would be preferred. <laughs> So starting with a quick fact. We are starting with a quick fact. So 1943, Claude R. Wickard is the head of the War Foods Administration, as well as the Secretary of Agriculture. He gets the bright idea to ban pre-sliced bread in America, which he did on January 18th, uh, 1943. So you might at this point be wondering why on earth would you ban pre-sliced bread? I am wondering why. (laughs) And it turns out no good reason, but they gave reasons because, you know, it's a government office. So to conserve wax, paper, wheat, and steel is kind of the, 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 the reasons pushed. But the, the, the problem with this is wax paper. So the idea here was the wax paper, uh, if you, on bread, they would wrap it. But the FDA regulations say that if you pre-slice the bread, you had to, at the time, had to do thicker wax paper. And so by, branding, by banning the, the pre-sliced bread, you, get the, you don't have the thicker wax paper. So this mm-hmm. is the idea. But the problem is... There wasn't a shorter a shortage of wax paper at the time. Like even even the War Prote- Production Board showed that the most of the manufacturers had like supplies on hands to last many many months, like without buying any more. And beyond that, there was no shortage of wax or wax paper or any of the materials needed for the war effort there. So it's not really clear what 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 benefit this was going to do. So a, a secondary goal: conserve wheat. And you can see this one maybe right. This could be good. So it turns out the Office of the Price Administration uh, around World War II had uh, authorized a 10% increase in the wheat. And so that also made flour and, and bread and everything uh, more expensive. And so I thought this maybe if you ban pre-sliced bread, 
less people will buy it. So you save wheat, but then also the prices will drop, make things cheaper for people. So this is kind of the idea, maybe. But the problem is, at the time, there was no shortage of wheat at all. Like the U.S. had stockpiled over 1 billion bushels of wheat, which was enough. Even if the U.S., the entire country had zero wheat harvested or imported for two years, the the wheat on hand, there was just stockpiled, was good enough to cover the U.S.'s entire needs. And the U.S. makes a lot of wheat. So it's like, and no, it's not like Germany's, you know, flying over the U.S. or anything. So, yeah, it's not not probably going to lose our fields or whatever. So it's not really clear why this was going to be a good thing either. But it was, you know, save wheat, I guess. So then the steel, so the bread making machines themselves, they actually are huge and they use a lot of steel. But, you know, you don't buy them again. They last forever. Uh, it was, so it wasn't like the bread makers of the time already had their machines. It's not like people were actively buying tons of them. Uh, right. So you weren't going to, I mean, you're not going to get enough to actually measure anything towards the war effort at all. So there was really no real benefit there either. And on top of that, as you might imagine, I mean, the best thing since sliced bread is an expression for a reason. Uh, people didn't like it when they banned uh, pre-sliced bread. So the New York Times actually has a little uh, quote from one woman who aptly put in a letter to them. Uh, I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. My husband and four children are all in a rush during and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each one, that's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least twenty slices for two sandwiches apiece. Afterwards, I make my own toast. Twenty-two slices of bread to be cut in a hurry. Yeah, so, as you, as you can Maybe this was the three. first recorded instance of a first world problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is a lot of bread, though. It uh, is. But, it is. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, not evenly sliced. You can't make them even like the pre-sliced stuff is. So, but yeah, three months later, uh, the ban after the ban was introduced. So in March 8, 1943, it was rescinded with Wickard stating, Our experience with the order leads us to believe that the savings are not as much as we expected. <laughs> it didn't save anything. No. Uh, it was pointless. It just probably, you, you can imagine like, is Wicker just like a bureaucrat, you know, like yeah, it does a, seem like doing something expression of bureaucracy. <laughs> like, he's just doing something to make it look like he's doing something, you know, like I'm on the war food bond or uh, administration. So I'm going to, I'm going to do something either way. The so. Bureaucrat's going to bureau. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. So moving what on. What a to waste that. of so, time. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, before we get into the rest of the show today, I got to tell you about one of our fantastic sponsors. This one, this episode, it's brought to you by Blinkist. Blinkist is an app. I'm going to bring up this app. I apologize if my phone gets interference while we do this. It sometimes happens, but there's not really anything I can do about that. I could turn it on to airplane mode, but then I, I don't know if I've got the audio and stuff downloaded. But Blinkist is basically an app which I've just opened up on here. Uh, and this is particularly fantastic for me. I'm a pretty busy dude. I'm making podcasts. I'm making videos all the time. You know, I, I, I love reading. I really do. But I just don't find the amount of time that I would like. So Blinkist is fantastic because what they've got is they've got thousands of books in here, nonfiction books, that you can get what they call blinks from. And basically they compress the book into either a 15-minute listen or like a 15-minute read and they've divided it into individual blinks. So I recently was on holiday and I was actually getting some reading done and I read the book Sapiens by uh, uh, Harari. And I like using this to go back and have like a recap over it. So in here, you know, one of these blinks, it's like, although not the first humans, Homo sapiens came to replace all other human species on earth. And then it just kind of continues like that. And it really compresses it down. And on also, if you're like, oh, I don't really like reading, you can just click this button and a little bit of luck. Let's turn that up. Yeah, there we go. 
why would I read when I can listen? So Blinkist, definitely go to Blinkist.com forward slash brain food. You will get a week to try it out if you're one of the first hundred people. You'll also get 25% off if you want to go full membership. And uh, honestly, I think you probably will. It's a, it's a great deal. It's a great way to consume content. It's a great way to, whether you're recapping something you've read before or just discovering something new, Blinkist.com forward slash brain foods. Just go do it. Sports the show as well, which is grand. Let's get back to it. The best thing since sliced bread. How did this, where did this, you know, who actually invented the thing that everyone says is the best thing, you know, before whatever next thing comes. Uh, so to begin with, we have, I mean, obviously flatbreads of various types have been around for about 15,000 years and maybe even as much as 30,000 years. So it's not clear exactly. So um, at a certain point, people did realize if you leave the, the dough out, eventually you get the little spores from the air uh, that come on and then it leavens it. And then if you use some of the old leaven, you know, you can put it in the new flour and then, you know, great, you can, you can make leaven bread. And so this actually about 4,000 years ago-ish, you know, give or take a millennia, mm-hmm. uh, was in ancient Egypt. They did, they definitely had like really refined leavened bread that they were, they were making all sorts of breads. So this was now a popular thing and it kind of just grew and expanded there. And so, you know, it's, this bread has been a staple of human diet ever since. But through most, the vast majority of bread making history, like thousands of years, humans have had to do everything. Like you got to grind the flour, you got to do it all by hand. And a lot of times, um, I mean, for quite a bit of that history too, you mostly had to do it at home or most people did. But I mean, there was bakers and stuff, but even the bakers, they had to do all this, you know, from start to finish, you do this. And so this remained until the 19th century is when things started to change there. So, uh, so we have, so Oliver Evans of Philadelphia created the first fully automated flour mill. So they did have flour mills, of course, before this to produce, but it was quite labor intensive. You needed a lot of people on hand to, you know, load the, load the bags and, you know, get the flour out the other bag. And so he, he created the first automated one in Philadelphia. And so an interesting aside on this guy also in 1805, he was the first person to create a vehicle that was self-powered that could go in land and water in 1805. It was a steam engine because he was a steam engine was kind of one of his things that he <laughs> yeah. was an expert in. So he named it the Orukater Amphibolis. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that, yeah. Catchy you could, name. You could just, yeah, you, you can imagine it had that like that, um, you know, like those you know, people, those uh, steamboats going on like the Mississippi or whatever, you know, that iconic, like the wheels, the big old yeah, wheels yeah, in the back. Yeah, so that's what he had in the back of this car. You can you can Google that name of the, the Arupter Amphibolus. Uh, but, and, then, and otherwise, it looks like it's just a wagon and then it had like a steam engine. And so you go on land and water. So anyways, that's an aside on this guy. Yeah. But he also created the the first automated, fully automated flour mill where you can just, it kind of like had these conveyor and buckets and stuff that kind of just moved everything along, ground it up. On the other end, you know, dumping it into bags and all that sort of business. So, yeah, as you might this, imagine, this, this, I just looked up an image of this boat thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. In 1805, self-propelled. Yeah. That's, that's cool. And just, you know, get in the water, boat around, come on out. So, yeah, so like a, as uh, in... An old school duck tour. Yeah, exactly. So, they have those in Seattle, by the way. That you can go on those. I've never Did done they? it. They, they've... Uh, <laughs> I think they had them in London. Uh, I saw yeah. them... I wonder who was the first person to come up with that. We did the rubber ducky, like how that became a thing. I've never, you know, yeah, the it's really different it. though, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, but, um, so at this point, industrial revolution, everything with the bread production becomes industrialized. People start, you know, more commonly going to like a store and just picking up their bread. But there's one thing that is not automated yet is the slicing itself, the actual end, the final slicing. 
And so we did have, uh, so parallel steel blades, they did, someone did like the 1860s, there was an American patent for this, mm-hmm. but like it wasn't actually a thing. Like commercially, you know, you, you bought your loaf of bread and it was always unsliced. So who actually invented it? 1928 is when one Otto Frederick Rowetter of Davenport, Iowa. I guess. Yeah, so he Davenport, invented Davenport, Iowa, have you been there? No. Uh, disappointed. No. Yeah. But uh, so things didn't go smoothly with his invention uh, at first. So this, I remember I said 1928 is when he actually debuted it, but all the way back in 1912 is when he actually invented it. Uh, so he created a prototype of this and he took it around and nobody wanted it because bakers were like, nobody wants pre-sliced bread. That's not a thing because... <laughs> Are you I mean, an idiot at that level of convenience? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that they're thinking is it's going to go stale faster, right? But Which, hang on, I, I wonder why doesn't it go stale faster? Because if I slice like bread... You know, the end bit always gets all crusty and weird. But then when I have pre-sliced bread, it doesn't get all crusty and weird. But it's just because the bags, they, they bag them in, you know, to, to make it so uh, it's, you know, really well, sealed. Well, it's not like my slice loaf is sitting out on the side. I put it back in the bag. Well, I mean, the end's still super exposed. And I suppose you're not, are you folding the bag, like, nicely so it's not getting that trapped air in there? I'll use a zip. I'll use one of those. Um... Are you using a paper bag or a, because paper bag, as it breathes, you know, it's not like airtight. Yeah, well, I used to use plastic and then someone at the bakery was like, you should use a paper bag. And I'm like, well, that seems a yeah. bit weird, but okay. Yep. But the paper will make it go stale really because it's not, it does breathe a little bit, which is why, you know, if you make like fresh baked bread and stuff, um, you don't want to, you don't want to just put it in a plastic bag because it's going to get all that moisture and it's going to get, make it really wet instead of like that hard crust, which you kind of like when you make fresh yeah. break, baked bread. And if you put uh, it like in something more airtight, it ends up being really soft and um, it's not. I mean, I, do, I don't want to show off or anything, but really, you know, I'll slice the end bit off and I'll just throw it away. Like that crusty edge bit. Yeah. You're like, that's the kind of life I lead. Some, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I can just throw that away. Yeah, you're, you cut know. A nut, and you know, I cut it really thin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so nobody wanted it though at the point. There's, it's just whatever. But so for Rowetter... The problem was, is, is 1917, so this is five years. He's gone five years. No one, no one wants this thing that he's invented. Which, by the way, he did come up with a way to round this problem, which he also invented, which was to have his machine then, right after it cuts it, it automatically would wrap the bread in wax paper to keep it from going stale. And so he, he invented a way around this problem, and it worked perfectly, but no one wanted it stale because who, want, who wants the pre-sliced bread, you know? But unfortunately, in 1917, so five years later, his blueprints and his machine were destroyed in the fire. So he, he needs to build How a new one. ever figure this out? He needs to build he's, a new one. Just, it's like I've invented a perpetual motion machine. I lost it a fire. That would be, a, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. maybe this thing was but, more complicated than I'm giving you credit for. Yeah, well, it, he doubles down. So, you know, you could say, oh, well, did it really work? You know, no one used it. But no, he designed, he did it again. He built it once he got some funding. He did struggle to get funding for a while, but once he got it, he built it again. And this time, this time he was able to show it off. And in 1927, uh, he was able to uh, rebuild the machine. And then shortly thereafter, he sells it. He finally finds a baker who will take it. It's the Chillicoth Baking Company in Chillicoth, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's about, that's about, um, that's kind of east of, or northeast of Kansas City. So in, when they get it, so it's already, it's in the bakery to actually, like it's a, it's not just a prototype. This is, you know, g- going to be used. And so the, the front page of the town's newspaper, when it, when it, uh, the headline of it was, Sliced bread is made here. <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a good ad. So, and a back page ad of July 6, 1928 of that same newspaper said it was greatest step forward in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. 
And see, that's just kind of fascinating because now it's like the best thing since sliced bread. But here it was like since bread was wrapped. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's I'm like, just going to start saying that. That's the best thing since bread was wrapped. <laughs> that is an improvement. And then you think before that, was it like since you had to like hand make the bread? You know, like since, since you know, they yeah. come up with machines that actually do it. So in any event, customers loved it. I did once it. hand make bread. Oh, sort of. Yeah. You've done this as well? Oh, I do. That. I'm actually just, I got a sourdough starter right going yeah. right now i had to i was just using the yeast for a while but um i'm making a new I, but i mean i got to bake i got the wheat myself from a field i'm not joking when i was a kid there was a big wheat field. yeah yeah yeah. there was a big wheat field out the back of my my the house where i grew up and yeah. you know as a kid i think a friend of mine came around like from school and we went out in the garden and we picked like a bunch of wheat off this you uh. know from the edge of this farmer's field which <laughs> sure probably wasn't quite legal <laughs> It was like a really small amount. And then we, yeah, we took all the little things inside out. We like sheathed it or whatever you call it, you know, and removed the things. Then we ground yeah. it all up with a coffee grinder and then we baked bread from it and it was delicious. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it was good. That would be, that's cool. Yeah, no, you know, I've never, I've never gone that, uh, that hipster and bread. Yeah, no, I was going to say, it's the hipster <laughs> thing I've ever done. Yeah. But I do enjoy the, the, you know, makes your house smell like fresh baked bread. It's not really that hard. It's mostly just setting something on a counter forever and then popping it in the oven. Um, Dude, I want some sourdough so bad right now. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I was in this house since I moved, I didn't have a sourdough and I finally, I was just using like yeast and it's not as good. You know, if you just use like the yeast where they, because it used to be actually the, all the yeast, even this, even the kind that you got in the um, store. And I mean, by used to be, I mean like in the 17th, 18th century, the, uh, the type that people would get still had the thing that made it sour, the lactobacillus or whatever it is it still had that in it. And it wasn't until around that point, I can't remember who did it. They actually figured out, I think it might've even been um, Pasteur or Louise Pasteur. I can't remember, but either way, somebody figured out how to, what, what was making the sour taste and they figured out how to, how to separate it from the yeast. And then, so yeah, that's been a thing ever since, but like, you know, the, the sour is way better. Um, <laughs> you made it significantly worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, so, I feel like we've worked out how to not, you know, how to eat yeah. beef without it getting old. It's so much better. But no, it's much better when it's all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let it go a little bit moldy. Let it get a funk. Yeah, this, which is kind of weird to think about. Up until that point in history, all bread ever made by humans was sourdough. You know? Uh, well, I should say not flatbread, I suppose, but all leavened bread. You know how often we bring up on the podcast, like, because we talk about things that happened in the past and usually they're fairly yeah. horrific. And we often yeah. come around to, wow, it's great to live now. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm. Maybe the boss wouldn't be so bad. At least they had good they all, bread. They had all fresh baked bread all the time. But I mean, you know, at the same time, if you're poor, like that was all you ate. It was like a little, you know, if you were lucky, you could throw some cheese in with it. Otherwise you had your hunk of bread, you know, with no butter or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Just, Sweet. It's probably like hard and stale because, and that's how French toast, that's how French toast case people didn't want to waste anything. So you had this hard, stale bread. And so if you could have access to milk and eggs, then you make, uh, you make You're killing me, man. It's, it's lunchtime over here. You're killing me. Yeah. We got like well, wait till we get half hour to go. Ah. We have an everyday origin of, of fascinating origin of everyday things coming up. Just there's total food related. Oh, God, I'm going to eat before there's that some one, good I ones. <laughs> yeah. French, French toast is going to be one of them. So I, I won't spoil oh. it too much now, but um, yeah, that's a good one. French. So going back to the back page ad of July 6th, 1928 had that best thing since bread was wrapped. So yeah, customers loved it. And you know, everyone loved it basically. 
Um, so this caught on and this is the guy who invented it. And then, so where did the actual expression, like who, who actually coined the expression, the best things in sliced bread? The first known documented instance of this is thought to be in a 1952 interview by the famous comedian Red Skelton. And so he's talking to the Salisbury, the Maryland Times, um, and he, he quotes them because they're worrying, I guess, about TV or something. So he advises them. Not to worry about television. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And that's the first known. I mean, maybe this was an expression that he just already knew from somewhere because that happens a lot in etymologies. But that's the first known documented instance of someone saying that exact thing. But we did have the best things since wrapped bread. So presumably, like other people were saying this before then. But a 1952 interview was the first known one. So stop bringing it back. Like I say, this this podcast, best yeah, thing, things since wrapped. wrapped since bread was wrapped. It is because, you know, without the wrap, it is like, you know, you're talking a day and it's... If someone was like, do you good. want your bread wrapped or sliced, which is more important? I'd be yeah. like, well, I could slice it at home, but... Unless you're like that lady who's using 20 slices of bread a day and then, you know, she doesn't care. She'd rather, nah, she'd rather have it sliced. I still about my bread if it was just... Well, because she's using it like every day. She's using like a whole loaf, you know, either way. So... We're moving on. No, now. I'm still, I'm still on the bags. I still think wrapping is more important than slicing. Yeah. Although yeah. you do go to the store and there's loose bread that you kind of grab with a tong and put it in like a bag, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it does last like a little bit, like if it's, yeah, if it's not cut so. or anything. Which is which was the argument of the bakers who clearly, I don't, but I suppose the bakers a conflict of interest there a little bit because if he did come up with a way to keep it from getting stale, and then you you got this pre-sliced thing, you know, you want you want the you don't want you kind of want it to go stale, I would think, like the. The bread they sell you the loaf not wrapped someone watching and someone watching this live commented in the in the chat that about the paper bag and the plastic bag the, the bread shops just found a way to get me to more buy more bread <laughs> that's see that's that's so exactly legit. what i was thinking yeah yeah it's, it's gonna go stale in like a day or two yeah um, it's most. like what's the best way to to keep the bread fresh well keep it in a really damp environment <laughs> yeah if you want to if you want to like sneeze on it a little that also helps yeah Sorry, that was so, nasty. Let's move on. <laughs> we are moving on to the to the shopping cart. So it's surprising because you think about the shopping cart, like it's obvious. Like, of course, like the design is obvious. How did someone not think of this just like immediately as the, as the way to design this? And how is this not a thing going way, way back? But it turns out it's, this is like a 20th century thing because it took home refrigeration. It took the automobile to then create the supermarket instead of just like a little market that you go down and you buy your you know, your one day supply of maybe stuff that you didn't have on hand because you, you know, grow all your own stuff. So supermarket comes around though in the 20th century and the retailers, they realize they have a problem because they have this, a lot of wares on their shelves, but people are literally like at first they didn't even have baskets. People are just carrying around stuff in their hands, but they're, it's a supermarket. So this doesn't work out. And so, um, yeah, people are just carrying around. They need it. So then they, someone did come up with the baskets. So this was the early 1930s when carrying around baskets was kind of the thing. It still wasn't ideal. So uh, numerous shopping cart like devices came around in the 1930s. And so we had like the 1937 uh, folding chair cart design. And this was by American business and Sylvan Goldman. And uh, this, this was kind of the one that started the actual shopping cart thing as we know it today. And again, like, look at this 1937. This was like a long gap of years where no one was coming up with the design better than just like a basket that you carry around in a supermarket. So um, the Goldman family, though, they, they integral to the whole history of it. So we'll talk a little bit about them. So they're a retailing family. Uh, Alfred Goldman Brothers Wholesale Fruits and Produce was their first shop. And they That's opened name it in, again. Yeah, Breckenridge, <laughs> Texas. There was an oil boom going on there. And so they, they did great business. But then the, the oil business kind of died in that, that town 
turned into a ghost town. So they left for Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is an awful place, in 1920. And uh, Sun Grocery Company... Tulsa, Oklahoma. Isn't that where... Uh... Isn't that where Chandler goes to work in Friends? Oh, it's... uh, I knew my fourth grade teacher in in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Maybe it was... Wait, you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma? No, I just lived there for a couple of years. I had like the the heaviest drawl accent for a couple of years for no particular reason. I don't know. I didn't even know. Um, I actually have a video of of it uh, recording. It's it's like like a drawl of drawls that I got rid of, thankfully. Um, But so, yeah, I had this teacher, fourth grade, never been outside of Oklahoma her entire life. She was in her 40s. I can tell you, Oklahoma is not, it's not a good place. Like, it's not the worst place on the planet, but it's not like, sure, it's not like in the heart of a volcano, but it's like not much better, you know, like you might juice. It's not a good place. And never been outside of Oklahoma her whole life. It blew me away. Even then, I well, was only you've never been grade. outside. You, you don't, you know, if yeah. you like grew up in a North Korean prison camp or whatever, you'd be like, <laughs> yeah. I guess this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. The perspective, I guess. But no. Anyways, yeah. so Sun Grocery Company, Tulsa, Oklahoma, nineteen twenty. So within three years, they're doing quite well. Uh, they have a chain of fifty-five locations, um, and they sold the chain to Skaggs Safeway Stores in nineteen twenty-nine. Now this could have been great. It was a few months before the stock market crash, right? They sell fifty-five. So I'm sure they got like retirement money going on here. The problem was is they invested it immediately <laughs> instead of if they just held on to it for a few months, this would have worked out great. So you have the stock market crash and you have all this money on hand. Invest then, you know, they're like ludicrously wealthy. But no, they invested immediately. Oh, you're laughing lost, at them, but it makes, it makes sense. Lost. You can't time the yeah. market and it makes sense. No, and they, they didn't know this, this stock market crash. So they just invested immediately, immediately lost it. But how talk about, it's like almost perfect timing, but just slightly off. In the, in the like, reverse, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So they, they lost everything. Oh. And so they, they head out, they head out to California way, you know, like everyone else. And so they go, uh, and they did actually get jobs. So that, you know, they get experience in businessmen and grocery grocery. So they were able to get jobs as grocery wholesalers and, you know, working, but just, you know, working for the man again, you know, not working for themselves. So, um, eventually though, they, they did have wealthy uncles still. And so they were able to get in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City, actually, some of their wealthy uncles go, to, go ahead and finance, you know, they give them some money with some pretty favorable terms to then they started standard grocery. And then they, that worked out well, you know, they, they know the grocery business, they, they were able to um, very quickly buy another grocery chain that was actually struggling and turn it around. So 1934, they do all this. And so then they, they do notice so there's this newly supermarket concept, you know, that's really popular, but they're seeing mothers and kids everywhere are just like, you know, their hands are full, the kids are running around. They can't, you know, so this, this is like a problem shopping and they would, they would like people to be able to carry lots of stuff. Small baskets just weren't cutting it. So Goldman, his first, you know, his first idea, his first go at it is, all right, I'll just hire some extra employees real cheap. You know, it's still the Great Depression. I'll hire them to just go. And when a basket is full, the, the employee will go grab the basket, take the person's name, take it up front. It's waiting for you. You can get, and they'll hand you a new basket so you can fill that up. Cool. Um, and this, this, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, but it's not really an ideal solution. It sort of works, but then, you know, I forget what you already got or whatever. So it wasn't awesome. So he's sitting there trying to come up with a new way. And so there is the official story from the Goldman, which I mean, they're kind of the winners. So they kind of paint a picture of like, he came up with it on his own. Like no one had ever thought of anything like this before. <laughs> and that's just not actually what was happening at all. There was actually tons of similar Step designs. Step aside, to Edison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's uh, tons of designs, of course, similar out there. Maybe some of them he knew about. I'm sure he knew some of them because it's his industry, but, you know, maybe not all of them. 
So we have like in 1920s, Hank and Pilot of Houston, Texas had the, um, this one, I, I just put this one in. There was tons of them. This one just thought was funny because it again shows, like to us, it seems so obvious what you should do, right? But, th- but at the time, they were just coming out with this weird thing. So 1920s, Hank and Pilot, Houston, Texas, puts a, a tracks, like train track type things throughout his whole store. And then you put the carts sit on the train tracks and you push them around, <laughs> but they have yeah. to stay on the tracks. You just got to follow the tracks. <laughs> and I guess that kind of makes people walk through your whole store, maybe like an Ikea thing going on there. Well, they design it so you have to walk through like the entire store just to yeah, get to the Yeah, but if someone stops, you just have, you know, oh, I don't need milk today. You've got to wait for someone yeah. who's getting milk. Exactly. This wasn't an ideal solution. It didn't, it didn't catch on. It didn't? <laughs> no. Wait, no, your store's in the States? You don't have the tracks going around? <laughs> no. Because no. all of them in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 1930s saw some improvements. So we had some wheeled baskets designed. So Joe Weingarten was one that had one. Uh, oh, and he actually, no, Joe Weingarten was the one. He had the, uh, like a, you think of like a, a wagon, like a little toy wagon you pull around. So this, this was like one of the better designs. That someone came up with certainly superior to a basket so it's just like a little wagon you pull around but you see the problem with all of these uh is they don't store like if you're a store and you want to have like hundreds of these where are you going to put them like you know they none of them stack together or ah, anything okay, like this yeah. so you just cool. you can't have a lot of you just need like a lot of space or you know and they're just all going to be cluttered somewhere so this these are all a problem so he's goldman sitting around and uh, supposedly he's sitting in his office and then he's looking at this thing and there's a folding chair there leaning up against the wall and he thinks, oh, all right, well, what if I took the baskets and made like a folding chair design? So like it, it folds up, you take the baskets out, it folds up, leaning against the wall, you can stack the baskets. This is real compact. It's super easy. You just unfold and then, and then is the put picture the in the notes, in. the thing you're talking about? Cause it does look yeah, like exactly. a folding chair. Yeah. And for people, it looks a lot like if you see, so you have the full size cart and then you have the, like the little ones, like if you're just going, like uh, so they have like a little, yeah, like the little basket on top and a little basket on the bottom. This is exactly what it looks like, only it's not telescoping like the modern ones. This one is just a, it's a fold, like a folding chair thing that you stack two baskets on, basically. And so this, you know, it took a little while uh, to, to get the design out. And he hired, uh, so he had a handyman, Fred Young, he hired to help him with the design and everything, make sure it didn't tip over and, you know, was sturdy even when you loaded the baskets up and, and reliable and all that. And so they, they did come up with this thing and it was uh, so patent number 2196914 is patented in 1940. Yeah. Oh, and he also enlisted the aid of another handyman, Arthur Costed, to invent it. Um, And this was huge, worked out really well. And so he did do an ad campaign starting, um, actually before he got the patent, he actually did an ad campaign and started uh, debuting it. Anyway, so June 4th, 1937, he had a a thing, uh, an ad, quite prominent, that just said, it's new. It's sensational. No more baskets to carry. <laughs> but he did not show it. Like, it's just like all like teasing it, you know, like, Ooh, well, what's you this thing? Like, I don't need baskets. Yeah, and I don't, not baskets anymore. So what's yeah, this so, revolution in the basket industry? <laughs> yeah. Now, again, you look at the like the official story from from this company, Goldman's company, and it's like, yeah, totally independent. But then if you actually dig a little deeper, so like a few weeks earlier, like a few weeks, Roller Basket Company actually advertised with a picture their product, which looked exactly like his product, uh, Goldman. So which also kind of questions. Is that that, that this picture? Yeah, it looks exactly like it. And as we're going to get into shortly, Goldman wasn't adverse to just ripping off someone else's idea, uh, as as we'll get into. And so this was just like a few weeks apart. So, you know, had he heard of this other thing and he just kind of whipped out his own or did, you know, who knows really. But the uh, official is that Goldman 
invented it anyway. But it was, whether he did or not, it was his design that ended up catching on and popularizing the shopping cart. So it was super popular. But actually, oh, this is funny. It wasn't immediately popular, though. When he first debuted it, he had significant resistance because humans hate change. And this was, male customers hated it because it was like an affront to their manhood. Like literally people would complain, I can carry, I can carry my bone basket. I don't need no little. And plus the other problem is it looked like a baby carrier. Like, like this was a baby buggy design kind of oh, at the sure. time. So yeah, I'm not pushing around a baby buggy around it. And I'm a I'm man. A man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If I so carry my but, baby, I carry it in a basket by hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So male, male customers, uh, I should say non-elderly, the elderly loved it. This was, it did catch on with the elderly right away, but women hated it too. And he actually had like a quote from one, one woman who claimed, I've pushed my last baby buggy. So she, yeah, oh, she, just, she doesn't want it. She's done with no. children. And, she's and this was like, this was a complaint. A lot of the women were like, no, I'm not going to, it's just a baby buggy. I'm not going to push that around the, the store. I could, I'll just carry my basket. Thank you. Um, so elderly. I really, I really wish they had a survey of the lazy. <laughs> Yeah. Popular with the elderly and the lazy. <laughs> it's just like another example of like, you see this over and over again all the time. Humans just hate change. Like, it doesn't matter if it's like vastly superior, better like, still. Yeah, I, no, I hate it. It's not doing that. So it was a tough sell for them. But then oh, the, the fellow grocers too were like, nah, I don't know. Um, they've, 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 their chief complaint was that children would run amok on the stores, like pushing and racing and, you know, pushing each other around the cart and stuff, which is just a thing that happens. But, you know, it's not like a major problem or anything. Uh, so this Goldman, he, he solves this issue by he hires people, manly looking men, to walk around his stores pushing the carts. That's and then genius. he hires. Yeah, he also hires women to do the same thing. And they just walk around, the, you know, acting like they're shopping all day long. And then he hires some greeters to show people how to unfold the, ba- the things, put the basket in and, and all that. And then they could help them, you know, fold it back up at the end. So and then he did the for his fellow businessmen. He also he hired some, some people to do this and he filmed it. And so they could show a demo of like all these happy customers who were really people he were paying, but he acted like it was just like happy customers, you know, to when he was showing it at the trade show. Look, they love this, love this thing. And so then this gets the grocers on board and he quickly had orders that were just like mass, like he was years ahead of what he could actually produce for his, his new cart design. So because he couldn't produce it all, he did license out the design so other manufacturers get on board. And so now it's like, it's just like ubiquitous all over the place. Uh, everybody wants this all over. So, but there was room for improvement because you're still you're folding the thing up. You're having to put the baskets in. You know, you're not, you're not just walking in, grabbing it and going, right, to, to save your space. So this brings us to 1946. And so a 50-year-old draftsman and freelance inventor, Orla E. Watson, he devises the first telescoping nested shopping cart. And if you go look up his design, just like Orla E. Watson, Google that, first telescoping nesting shopping cart, mm-hmm. you can see it looks almost exactly like what we use today. Um, it is basically what we use. So... He ends up creating this. And so you can look at his final, his patent number 2479530. So you can go, it's always interesting to go read those patents. You always don't even need to look it up. Just imagine a modern shopping trolley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's nice. But the problem is, Watson, you think, again, this always happens, as we talked about in the last episode, and, and we're going to talk about a future one too um, on some other stuff. But this always happens. So the guy who invents it, it's just like, you know, either they don't get credit or they don't make any money off it, or it's a whirlwind of legal battles if they try to like stake their claim, you know, because yeah. everyone is just going to do this. So this, this is Watson is going to have this problem. And Goldman is actually the root of his problem because he comes up, so Watson comes up with the design. He shows this around because it's not patented yet. And so one of the people he shows it to, of course, Goldman is industry, looking at the trade shows. And so he sees it. So he does eventually get a salesman, George O'Donnell, who, who's 
wants to get on board. He wants to help market it to the different um, people. And so they, they, they together form Telescope Carts Inc. in April of 1947 to sell these new carts, which are you know very similar to the modern cart. Six months later, they're set to debut this to, to this ready-made. They're ready to start selling it at a trade show. They go there. And just before they go there, though, Goldman announces they, too, have created a nested cart that they invented, which is exactly like Watson's in design. Like every part of it looks exactly like Watson's. And so, and they were going to, because Goldman's a big company and they can offer, you know, they have deal steel, deals with steel and all this at the time, they can offer it cheaper. They can make it cheaper and they can make it faster. And so they were actually offering it also $3 cheaper per cart, which is about $34 cheaper today, which I mean, that adds up when you're buying hundreds of them. So of course people are going to buy from them and they can, they can produce it in mass, like basically right away and with good quality. Whereas Watson and O'Donnell are still trying to wrap up the manu- or ramp up the manufacturing. They're trying to get the steel. And this is like, you know, mass producing anything, especially when you just start now, that's really complicated, you know, but Goldman's kind of got a jump on them there, but they're just using Watson's design, right? But they're just claiming it as their own. So O'Donnell, he finds out about Goldman's new cart that he's going to debut at this third supposed to go to. So uh, he writes Watson a letter on October 16th, 1947 in something of a panic. These people have virtually copied our carts and have beat us to the punch with present introduction to this important group of buyers. As stated, they will also be at the Super Mercat Convention. Uh, which, of course, will present competition and, to a great degree, take away from us all the glamour of being the only ones with such a featured cart. The important question is, what have you done with your patent attorney to hasten a thorough investigation as to possible infringements? And I'm sort of shouting that because you wrote that in all caps. All caps, yeah. We cannot afford to take slow measures in determining who is right or wrong. Something must be done immediately to ascertain the facts and, if at all possible, restrain them from exhibiting their cart at the convention. Emphasis there, not mine. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, he, he capsed a lot of it. And so Watson, he's the other, he's like, he's cool customer. You know, he's just like, whatever, dude. So he responds like quite calmly, he responds two days later. It's unfortunate. That there is always someone to spoil one's fun, especially if that fun is good and ours is good. And we will be fighting them continually from now on is my guess. This is just the beginning. I'll bet it didn't take all these cart manufacturers long to get here and examine our carts at the Floyd Day store when it was first put in. And with all of the talking we've done and pictures we've passed out, it just wouldn't be possible that they did not know about them. And of course they did. And if this Oklahoma outfit knew about them at that time, they would have had... This guy is... He seems to have an allergy to full stops. (laughs) It is. The whole paragraph is like one sentence. At that time, they would have jumped down on our neck long before this if they had had any ideas of a patent on this telescope principle. He seems very laid back and yeah, he's clearly like, not dude. reading what he's written. It's not only laid back, he's just like, yeah, we're going to have a lot of, you know, it's going to be legal battles nonstop, whatever. Yeah. He's going to be fine. This is going to be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna our whole company, but you know, whatever, it's it's fine. Uh, so le- legal battles did ensue. So the the document evidence does strongly indicate that Watson invented it, not Goldman, uh, and Goldman just Goldman's firm just copied it. But Goldman had money; they had the manufacturer, and they just threw lawyers at the issue. You know, uh, to just threw Watson into oblivion. So they decided ultimately, Watson, of course, he doesn't have money. He doesn't. He can't fight the giant. You know, he's not going to be able, even if he you know, tries to manufacture as this is dragging out, his company's not making any money, mm-hmm. you know, off this because everyone's going to buy from Goldman because it's cheaper and better quality because Watson and his partner were having trouble with manufacturing and stuff. So they settled out of court. 
They reached an agreement June 3rd, 1949 with Goldman. Goldman officially recognizing Watson on this one. Watson invented it. We copied it. And we will pay Watson a whopping $1, $10 today, for having infringed on their design for a couple of years up to this point. But in return, of course, the, the, the longer part was Watson then granted Goldman exclusive rights to manufacture the nested cart. So nobody else can manufacture it. If you want this nested cart, which now everyone wants because it's way superior, you have to buy it from Goldman, excepting there was a few licenses Watson had already signed. But other than that, everything. So Watson companies would be given some royalties for every cart sold. So now they're kind of out of the manufacturing business. Goldman's just going to make it. And Watson's just going to sit back and make his money. This sounds like an agreement they could have come to at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, they could have partnered up. It would have worked out. But so this sounds totally works out awesome for Goldman. (laughs) Yeah, he gets even better for Goldman because so Watson, he's he's probably just kicking back, you know, sipping sipping some beer on the beach somewhere, right? Collecting his royalties. But no, because every other cart manufacturer and a lot of companies uh, elsewise, we don't want to buy from Goldman. You know, like they have a monopoly now; they can do what they want. Uh, And so everyone's mad at Watson, basically. So they all sue Watson. So all these car manufacturers sue Watson to try, and they're trying to get his patent invalidated is what they're trying to do so they can make yeah. it so that Goldman doesn't have exclusive rights. And so this, this is what he's dealing with for the next few years. I was just everyone trying to get his patent invalidated. And then on top of that, Goldman turns out, it's like, you know what? I don't think we should have to pay you royalties for your oh. design. And so they just stop paying him uh, and, you know, just stop. And they do give him a flat fee, but it's like way less than, you know, what he would have. And so... During this time when he gets the flat fee, they're going to renegotiate basically. But they're just, no, we're not going to pay you and we're going to renegotiate the deal. It's like, well, that's, you know, they this just do it. And what, poor Watson. Yeah, what's poor Watson. But of course, how laid back he is. He's probably like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's good. He's but, like, oh, so that's Watson, cool. I hate money. <laughs> <laughs> he's an inventor though. He gets inventive with this. And this is where the deal gets even better for Goldman. So he does. He makes he reworks the deal with Goldman. Now Goldman will allow him to license the cart to other companies, but he has to give Goldman a percentage of the royalties that he's licensing out to the other companies yeah, for this thing that they didn't even invent. And so in exchange, Wait, and, what's and Goldman ex- doing at this point? <laughs> yeah, just making money basically. And so in, in exchange for this, so that's Goldman's side. And now on the other side, if this works out now, he can license the other. So all the other companies, they, they agree to drop their legal battles against Watson to try to get his patent invalidated. So now they're happy because he's licensing to them and Goldman's happy because they're getting royalties for all these cards they aren't making, <laughs> plus the cards they are making. And then Watson presumably still, I mean, everyone's using this card. So presumably Watson have ended up super wealthy and kicking back. And you know, he was 50 when all this started. So, you know, he's retired and he's kicking back on the beach somewhere probably. But, chill about yeah. It. yeah. That, that is the, the saga of the shopping cart that we know and love today. I like it. Well, I mean, not, well. Eh, it kind of worked out for Watson yeah, in the end, but I mean, it was kind of a, seems okay. it shouldn't have been very shrewd. <laughs> yeah. This happens over and over again. Every time you read like a story of someone, the first person to invent some new, revel- it's always this. It's like everyone copies it without paying royalties. And then there's like a series of lawsuits with the person who actually did it spending more money in legal bills usually. And just <laughs> like we titled poverty. It we just happens over and over episode. again. And the last one, the fascinating origins of everyday things. We could just call it people stealing each other's ideas for a while <laughs> and screwing the original inventor. Cause you know, why not? Uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about later. We, we've covered it on YouTube, but we're going to talk later in one of the others. We're going to talk about some of the origin of instruments. And I mean, I am going to throw in the saxophone one, even though we've already covered it, just because uh, it's so interesting. And that one is like the epitome of all guy getting screwed for his amazing, amazing inventions. Um, 
but yeah, that'll, that'll be coming in a later episode, but either way. I'm already looking forward. Is that, is that today's episode wrapped? Or second yep, one we that is, that is today. Wow. Okay. Thank you everybody for listening. If you're listening to this, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We are at a thousand reviews doing that thousand dollar Amazon gift card, giving it away to someone randomly from the first review. So please go ahead and do that. We'll be back. And go listen. We have lots more episodes on the podcast, like 50 now or so. Uh, and it's way better. Wow. Audio quality is way better. Um, it's a lot more polished. We cut out all our stupid mistakes and yes. losing our place and everything. So <laughs> it's way better. Listen, <laughs> listen to that version. The best. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Dude, I want some sourdough so bad right now. <laughs>